Good evening and welcome to the TNT show. I'm John Drummond. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. Rhys Mogg, from a sedentary position, confirmed this week that he has no respect for Scots because they vote for the wrong party. My word. And of course, this has been the spring statement today and the Chancellor has been fulsome in his praise for himself and his party. Many poor people will find it very difficult to join in that. For example, petrol prices, it seems, are coming down to where they were last Thursday. Uh, that's what making a difference is all about. Uh, tonight, we'll be talking to Alan Smith, MP. And again, with the Chancellor's statement, plus the controversy over ferries to the latest opinion polls, so much to talk about. Tonight, the nation talks to Alan Smith. Thanks for joining us, Alan. How are you? Hi, John. Uh, good to see you. It's been ages. But uh, so I would doing away personally. I'm increasingly saying that I'm doing fine. It's the rest of the world that's the problem. <laughs> I'm not getting many jokes in my speeches these days, I have to say. It's serious stuff down here. I'm speaking to you from my office in Westminster. I'm just off Whitehall and I'm the Foreign Affairs lead at the Westminster Group. So obviously Ukraine's been dominating everything and it's almost incredible to say we have war in Europe. So many of the things that we're hearing and seeing are actually almost direct flashbacks to the 1930s, 40s, and uh, it, it's a dreadful, dreadful situation. But as, as you say there with uh, today, the spring budget, uh, the, the spring statement, uh, literally a rich man's budget. Uh, this, this is a budget from one of the richest men in government, one of the richest men in the UK, and uh, he's cuddled around the sides with some of the, the, the 5p fuel duty cut, very, very well put that it puts prices back where they were on Thursday. It, it, it won't touch the sides. Of people who are struggling, particularly hauliers, but for people who are struggling with universal credit cut, pensioners who've had a real terms pensions cut, uh, it's it, it's got nothing. It's appalling. I, I'm I'm deeply worried about the cost of living crisis because some of the energy costs, especially that we're seeing coming down the tracks at Folk, are, are utterly unmanageable, and we need to see far bigger intervention than we've seen. Uh, and yet, but the guy seems utterly impervious to that logic. I mean, he sits there on his hundreds of millions of pounds, uh, knowing that his wife, I suspect, is even more in her bank balance. I can see how it might be difficult for him to relate to many of your constituents who have to choose between heating and eating. Indeed. And to be sure, you can legislate on things that you don't necessarily yourself identify with. Uh, That's about taking advice. That's about having empathy. But I've noticed it since I got to Westminster. I, I, I still very feel that I'm, I'm I'm a stranger in these parts. And when I'm talking about universal credit, when I'm talking about people going bankrupt, being made redundant, I've, I've got people in my immediate friend circle, my family, uh, who've been through that, who are going through that, who are at risk of that. I'm speaking to a number of the particularly Tory MPs where they're talking about other people, they're not talking about people like them. And it's a it, it's a quite different headspace for, for a lot of people on this stuff and you know, people who, weren't sensible enough to choose their parents wisely. You know, that, that, that seems where a, a lot of them actually are coming from. And it, it's, it's pretty grim to see up close, I have to say. Yeah. Well, perhaps come back to that, Alan, because it's, I mean, um, A, it's topical, and B, I, I suspect a lot of the people watching and listening tonight will be increasingly concerned about how they're going to cope. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're looking at a situation that we haven't seen since records began in terms of the uh, the effect it will have on, on, on ordinary folks, as opposed to the, the Chancellor and his friends, perhaps. But could we talk a little bit about putting your, keeping your 
foreign affairs hat on for a second. Uh, you've been to Ukraine mm. recently. Uh, if you had to, and this is a hard question, I apologize in advance, but if you had to look down the pike, as the Americans say, uh, maybe three to six months from now, how do you think things will look then as opposed to now? Well, goodness. Uh, honest answer, I don't know, but I can I can predict and speculate happily enough. It, it, it was uh, an SNP trip by myself as Foreign Affairs Lead, Stuart MacDonald as Defence Lead uh, down at Westminster, and Dave Dugan uh, on the Defence team as well. Uh, we went over to Kiev and had absolute top-level access with the uh, the Deputy uh, Foreign Minister, the Deputy uh, Defence Minister briefing us, academics, think tanks, uh, various of the, the, the MPs uh, from cross-party uh, talking about uh, where things were, what they needed, where things might go to. And the big takeaway that, that, that I think can't be stressed enough is that for the Ukrainians, they've been at war since 2014. They, 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 they've been partially illegally annexed in Crimea and partially occupied in uh, the Donbass. Uh, for the best part of a decade, and uh, they've been used to this, and, and this was a massive escalation in an existing conflict that they've been dealing with, and the Ukrainians have been absolutely incredible in their resilience, their organization, the, the way they've fought back, but also the way they've kept trains running, the way they've kept water going, the way they've kept uh, basic services going and, and, and looked after their people has been inspiring. So, so in terms of where it goes to, to, to answer your question, the talks that uh, that are going on, uh, sponsored by Turkey and the Azeris, uh, are are progressing, and they're, they're not progressing overly fast. Uh, President Zelensky's uh, comment uh, earlier this week that he'd be willing to countenance a, a promise promise from Ukraine to not join NATO. Uh, that's up to them to to say, and, and obviously I think uh, NATO membership should be very much at individual states should be entitled to apply to NATO if they so choose. They certainly shouldn't have their neighbours making their decisions for them. But that was something that was a, a significant offer on his part. He's also talk, talking about, uh, he's willing to talk about the constitutional future of the Donbass and Crimea. So he's going to the table with things that, that he's actually substantively putting forward. But my concern is that uh, because the Russian advance has stuck, the Kremlin might get more and more desperate. And we've seen how the Kremlin behaved in Syria. We've seen use of chemical weapons in Syria. And uh, we, we need to be ready for the possibility that they might, they might go down that road uh, as well, which are crimes against humanity, even more crimes against humanity than they're doing presently. So it's a, a really serious situation. And uh, one of the things that I'm glad to say the international community, the EU Foreign Affairs Council was talking about this on uh, Monday, Tuesday, uh, about the accountability for war crimes uh, of individual Russian uh, soldiers, but also the various folks that they've drafted in, the, 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 the leaders uh, of these actions. So there will be long-term consequences to this, and where it goes, I, I, I think there has to be a negotiated solution. Uh, every single conflict that happened during the Cold War ended with some sort of negotiated outcome. There was, there was, there was precious few victories in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So, so the talks need to continue, the talks need to be serious, but I think there will be consequences for the Russian economy for decades to come uh, from all of this. And will we see regime, regime change uh, in the Kremlin? I, I, I have to say, I think it's an outside chance at the moment, but we can't discount the possibility as the, the oligarchs realize that their time's up so long as Putin's there and so long as the war continues. 
So there's, there's, there's a number of moving parts to it, but uh, we've got to all hope for a negotiated outcome and an and immediate cessation of hostilities to let uh, humanitarian aid get in, to let refugees get out. And we also need to think about the rebuilding of Ukraine. We, we, yeah. we need to think about a Marshall Plan that's going to rebuild Ukraine once once peace is somehow established. How we get there, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but we need to be thinking about the longer-term future of a free and prosperous Ukraine. Thanks for that. There's a question from Charles Smith. He says, uh, in your experience of, your considerable experience of the EU, do you think its leaders will be able to hold together long enough to deal with the Ukrainian problem satisfactorily? Cracking question. Uh, we, we saw, and I was a member of the European Parliament for 16 years and the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament for five. And the EU as a foreign policy actor is still very, very much at an early stage. You know, the EU is a big economic actor and it's big in terms of trade policy. It's a huge uh, single market that uh, exerts its influence in, in soft power ways, but it's never really been a foreign policy actor because the member states by and large couldn't agree to that degree of, uh, of, 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 uh, of action. So the same way as when the UN Security Council is divided, the UN can't do that much, the EU is exactly the same. And, and what we saw over a weekend, literally over a weekend, we saw the EU evolve into a massive energy power and a massive foreign policy power as well. Uh, if you told me a year ago, if you told me two months ago that the EU would be procuring funding and supplying military equipment for a third country that isn't an EU member, I, I honestly wouldn't have believed you. I, I, I wouldn't have said that the, cons the, the competencies would be granted by the member states. I wouldn't have said the unity would have been there. So we've seen a remarkable evolution uh, in, the EU, in the EU's competence, the EU's ambition, the EU's capacity before our eyes. Of course, this is the EU I want to see Scotland get back into and play that part. Uh, in that global A team, which has just become a far more significant power uh, in every sense than it was. So, will the unanimity hold? I, and I think it's. I think it will. Uh, there's elections looming in Hungary. I think Mr. Orban is on his way out. I have to say, I don't think that's much of a bad thing. Uh, what comes after him remains to be seen, and we, we, we'll see. But uh, likewise, the rule of law disputes that we've seen with Poland and, and Hungary, particularly with the EU, and the EU is a club of rules. If you, if you join the club, you need to play by the rules. Uh, these disputes have been put to one side in a very, very big way. And both those uh, governments, which were acting up a bit, but uh, have now realized that the benefits of international solidarity far outweigh uh, the, the constraints that that, as they see it, put on them. So, so to answer the question, yes, I think that unity will hold, because I think the actions of the Kremlin in Ukraine have demonstrated to everybody just how important international solidarity and cooperation actually is. It is interesting because history tells us that where there is a sort of fairly loose assemblage of nation states, sovereign states, like there is the EU, uh, and dare I say it, the United States way back when, it's, yeah. it's, it tends to be outside pressure that, that provides the impetus for these groupings to coalesce into a, an entity which is different to what it was before because the individual units still pride themselves on being sovereign but it takes an external force to produce a, a different outcome very often an unexpected outcome without that it tends not to happen that they mm -hmm. tend to be conjoined but not necessarily 
pointing in the same direction all the time. I guess it requires a lot of effort from the people in the middle to centre to get, to get things going. Uh, this, is, this is one of such a committed European and committed internationalist. You go right the way back to the founding days of Scotland as, an, as a nation. Scotland's independence was always rooted in a wider construct. You know, the, the Declaration of Our Growth was addressed to the Pope in Rome, the, the Lübeck, the letter of Lübeck, one of the first things William Wallace did when he was appointed High Protector was to write to the Hanseatic League and say Scotland's open for business. Independence is nothing in the abstract. It's always in relation to the wider context that independence is, is, is recognised. And the EU is international solidarity in action. Yes, you pull a bit of sovereignty. Yes, that puts a bit of constraints on you, economically particularly. But the benefits of that solidarity, the benefits of that working together far outweigh uh, that in a, in, a, in a massively interconnected, scary, resource-scarce, climate-change-driven world. Yeah. We're going to need to find ways of working with our friends and allies. And it, and it grieves me deeply that the UK presently shows no sign of cooperating in that structured sense with other organisations like the EU. And, and that's where I think Scotland's got a better future as an independent state in the EU. Yeah, on that on that subject, we've had a couple of questions. Uh, one from Mark McNaught, uh, and he says he would like to ask Alan about EFTA membership as a route into the EU, because obviously, if you want to join the EU, you can't snap your fingers and say, "Look, we made a mistake when the UK left. <laughs> we are now not part of it, so therefore we'd like you to readmit us tomorrow morning." I guess that's not going to happen. So I, I think that would be at the top end of expectation. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not question, yeah, Maybe not. Yeah. So the question is: Is EFTA membership a route that, that you think is desirable and appropriate? Mark's been, to his credit, banging this drum for a, for a long time, and I, I have to say I disagree. I, I, I think uh, viewing EFTA as a stepping stone is disrespectful to EFTA. Uh, acceding into EFTA is also not something you do with uh, conflict box tokens and you, you snap your fingers. And there's a process of accession into EFTA as well. And what advocating EFTA membership does is, is lose a lot of the goodwill that we've got in Brussels, particularly, and in the member state capitals. That in 2014, a lot of the member state capitals didn't really get what we were about, didn't really get where we were coming from. Uh, didn't like the word nationalist. That that that's a reality in a lot of European capitals. And and the fact that we sit, sat with the Greens in the European Parliament, we were very much in the mainstream of European social democracy. It was oh yeah 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 good, but you're, you're still a nationalist. You still want to break things up, which actually is very the opposite of my politics. So so I don't think EFTA as a stepping stone solves any problems that aren't going to be solved by EU membership. We want EU membership. We want full, full EU membership. And the opt-outs and the, the arm's length, rather sniffy approach the UK took over the decades. We won't have that. We, we, we'll be emulating Ireland. We want to be at the, at the heart of things. And the EU is evolving really fast. Uh, Denmark's going to be having a referendum ending their defence opt-outs because of what's happening in Ukraine now. Uh, Finland, Sweden are talking about, now it's not an EU thing, but it's a NATO thing, but Finland and Sweden are openly, Finns particularly, talking about acceding into NATO. Uh, there's a lot of things moving that aren't about us, and, and this is where I think us saying that, well, let's go for a halfway house, let's go for something a wee bit sniffy, arm's length, 
no, let's be clear and full-throated about what it is we want. We want EU membership. We want to be a normal European state, like all the others, doing our bit, contributing what we can, and benefiting from that solidarity. And, and I think EFTA is just a distraction uh, in, the, in that context. And I, I, I don't think we should be advocating EFTA membership, which is why I'm pro-EU. Okay, m moving on, we might come back to this. Oh, by the way, you mentioned the Green Party. Uh, mm -hmm. Last week we had Molly Scott Cato on the show. Oh, fabulous. Oh, she, she's, she's a doll. And she wanted to be remembered to you. Well, she said, well, before she she said I was a doll as well. <laughs> she said, because we, we sat on the, uh, we sat on the, uh, in, in the European Parliament and we worked together, Alan and I, she said, so I have very, very pleasant, uh, memories of of working together and collaborating. Oh, she, she, she was, she, she's she's a she's a great colleague and and really really like like so many of the Greens, really sharp, really committed, really yeah. passionate. Uh, another ex MEP colleague, uh, Caroline Lucas, is of course a member of the Westminster Parliament for Brighton Pavilion. We had lunch yesterday, and uh, we, we've we, we've got a long and deep cooperation with the Greens, going back a long long way. I've I've a, I've a great affection for where they're coming from. Well, you, you, your your opinion was endorsed by the audience, uh, some of whom asked her to stand at the next Scottish elections. <laughs> she said that would be difficult from Stroud, but <laughs> never say never. Never say never. I, I, I could give a few MSPs a free pass if we were getting Molly in that. <laughs> I think half the Tory front bench. Well, all of the Tory front bench have swapped for Molly. That'd be that'd be great. <laughs> Yeah, obviously things that I mean things are moving so fast. Not just in Ukraine, uh, but everywhere the economy is is going down the tubes. But the looks of it, it also looks as if the government doesn't really take it terribly seriously, as we discussed, uh, which makes people a lot a lot of people really really uh, uh, concerned about how we can, as they put it. Uh, uh, get rid of the, the Westminster connection so that we can be free of some of these constraints. Uh, and the latest scare that's doing the rounds, Alan, is the notion that uh, the, some of the press organs are suggesting there might be a general election in 2024. Now, how would that, where would the SNP be located if uh, if there is a putative referendum in 2023, I mean, it looks like these things are all sort of somehow, the, 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 the fit is difficult to see. I mean, for example, it, it, will there actually be a referendum in 2023, people are asking? Or will the fact that there's an impending general election uh, put that to bed for a bit? Because the notion is that if, if, if a referendum is delayed leaving John, uh, Boris Johnson aside for a second. But it's generally actually delayed because of COVID and it's also delayed because of Ukraine. Uh, and a lot of people, by the way, the opinion polls will agree with this, say that these are two sensible moves. But eventually there has to be a referendum at some stage. So do you think it will be happening in 23? And how would that work with a general election the year after? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy to speculate and, and I think the spring statement has put paid. The spring statement today has put paid to any speculation that there was going to be a 2023 Westminster election. That that was doing the rounds as well. I think that's gone. I, I think that's uh, that's receded. I don't think it was an overly high prospect anyway. But you never know. Uh, look at what Mrs May managed to to do to 
the country and herself. Uh, from from an SNP perspective, well, look, well, look, we, we know what we want, we know who we want to be. We, we want to have a referendum on independence in 2023. We think that's appropriate, we think that's fitting, we think that gives proper lead-in time uh, for the debate, the discussion. Uh, we hope that uh, COVID will be sufficiently receded by that point to allow us to, to take that forward. Uh, so, so that's what we want to see, that's what we want to do, and frankly, other considerations are secondary to that. Yeah. Uh, do we have a Westminster election after an independence vote? Well, we need to see how the independence vote has gone in terms of how the, the numbers on that would fall. It's so, realistic so to say that we'd be within a, a, a negotiation period at that point. So what that does to how people want to vote in that Westminster election, who knows? I think what people are saying is, it, since it's hugely unlikely that Boris Johnson is ever going to agree to a Section 30, uh, I mean, he can't say no, because that would be constitutionally hugely improper. Uh, but since he controls the constitution, not impossible. Uh, but if he continues to say no, then there cannot be a referendum. And therefore the notion is, okay, if that's the case, and there's going to be a general election in 2024, why don't we make the 2024 election a plebiscite on independence? I.e. everyone who stands, like yourself, says, look, you know, if you vote for me, you you know you're voting for an SNP candidate, but let me be very blunt with you. We regard this as a plebiscite, so therefore we don't need a Section 30. There isn't a Section 30, it's not legal. I think there's there's a lot of risks in that, and and, and let's say we do say it's a plebiscite. You know, for, for the sake of this discussion, let's, let's take the hypothetical leap that we say it's a plebiscite election. Let's say we massively win it. What do we do when he says no then? Yeah, how, how does that answer anything? How does that take it forward? That, that there's no greater legal certainty to that than there was in the lack of a Section 30 order. Now, I, I actually dispute uh, your suggestion there that there's no way he's ever going to offer a, a Section 30 order. We see the UK government preparing for a referendum on a daily basis. You know, they've, they've got all the spin doctors, all the spads in the Scotland office pumping out uh, via, the, via their uh, various media outlets and the rest of them. They're pumping out the scorched earth, everything in Scotland's rubbish, and the, we need the UK or will somehow be uh, cast into darkness. Uh, it, the, we, we, we see them making these preparations. You know, that, that's what the levelling up agenda is all about. That's what the UK T Internal Market Act is all about as well. Uh, so so I'm, I'm speaking to the Tories here as... as as, as I do regularly, just to, you, you do have those chats around these things. And the smarter Tories know fine that it's a delaying tactic. And they can't say no forever, exactly as you say. So if it's when, not, not, not if, rather if it's when, then why not now? And we've put forward an eminently reasonable proposition in 2023. Democracy doesn't stop anywhere. And uh, that's, that's, our, that's our objective, that's our agenda. And I think it's important that we put keep the Tories on the hook, keep the Tories on the spot, that their position's unreasonable. Remember, I, I represent Stirling uh, within Westminster. Stirling voted no 60% in 2014, and then voted massively pro-EU in the 2016 referendum, and then in 2019 voted 51% SNP for an out and proud nationalist. There's a lot of people in Stirling are on that journey, continuing that journey. Brexit has shocked a lot of people out of where they used to be thinking politically, particularly about the Constitution. I've got an article in my column in the National today 
uh, has got there that we need to talk less about Mr Johnson's position and we need to spend more time persuading the people of Scotland that independence is the way to go. If, if, if independence was sitting on 60, 70, 80% of the, in the polls in Scotland, there would be no question of how and when the referendum happens. It would be an absolute certainty. So my focus is getting out there in Stirling and persuading people that independence is the way to go. Our position is eminently reasonable, democratically mandated by the people of Scotland. Mr Johnson's position is unreasonable, and I don't think we should let him off the hook on that. I've got some reservations because it sounds to me like you're appealing to somebody's better angels, as Abe Lincoln might have said. I don't see any angels surrounding... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I suspect I suspect they they, they traded in their wings long since. But and I and I, and I take your point. I, I do take your point. But we can't do this unilaterally. That's the brass tacks of the situation. The Catalans have proven what happens when that when that's done. We'd lose Middle Scotland and we'd lose the international community as well. So this has to be a negotiated outcome with the UK, not least for what happens after the referendum, as we. We're not changing geography. We're not changing the fact that the UK is going to be a close and important partner and ally for us. So how, how the referendum's done is really, really important. And I, I see the Tories preparing for a referendum. I see them preparing the ground right now. And I think we need to continue that discussion, that negotiation, ratchet up the pressure. Mike Russell put out his plan as to how to ratchet up the pressure on the UK government. And yes, it's frustrating, but I, I think we need to stay the course because I don't see that any other options answer the questions. And your know, plebiscite election, yeah, good, fine. I mean, we, we've looked at that, but I don't see that that answers any of the problems that the utterly unreasonable refusal to grant a Section 30 order on the part of the UK government present. But it wouldn't subtract from it. It may not add significantly. It wouldn't subtract. Well, anyway. I, I, I think we need to be careful about not presenting things as answers when when they're not. Okay, okay. But, I mean, there is a broader point about the legality of something versus the uh, the morality of it. And uh, very often morality trumps legality, but not in every case, I agree. Uh, well, well, for that, I think we need 80-90% of the people of Scotland with us. <laughs> Although, otherwise, we'll be the debatable lands for a while to come. But but your, your position is endorsed by the polls that are out today, which says that 61% uh, of Scots believe that the UK will not exist in its current form in 10 years' time. Mm. So yeah, the, the, this, this, is, this is my point. I, I, I spend more time on the doorstep than most, and... The people in Stirling who voted no in 20... Everything I'm putting out is aimed at the people who voted no in Stirling in 2014 and voted SNP in 2019. And that's a big shift of people who might not be with us on the Constitution, but these are the people we need to win. We, we, elections, referendums are always won in the middle. And you, you, that's exactly where I'm aimed at. And these people are... And remember, a lot of the Brexit stuff has been subsumed by COVID. A lot of the consequences that yeah. are are there and are in the mix are being have been disguised by COVID, and as that becomes clearer to people, the real world advantages of independence in the EU will be, I think, an unstoppable proposition compared to tiddly toy town Brexit Britain. You, you mentioned a couple of things there, Mike Russell and the Constitution. 
Now, mm. Mike's working on a draft constitution. Have you been consulted on that? You, you presume you're aware of that? He's... Uh, yes, I am aware of it. Uh, I'm not aware of any publication data as yet. Uh, I've uh, been tangentially aware Mike was down briefing us uh, at the Westminster Group about progress on, on that sort of stuff. Uh, I, I think it'll be a cracking piece of work. I've not seen it yet. As we've discussed long since, John, we've gone back 15 years, yeah. <laughs> whatever it was, we had that French meeting at SNP conference. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the whole point to independence is that we empower citizens and constrain the executive and our government. You know, the idea that uh, democracies, democracy has to be run the way the UK runs it. You know, that that's one of the whole points of independence that we'll do it differently. So, so that'll be an, an energising document, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing it as well. Yeah, and I think it could be a real asset when it comes to on the doorsteps, particularly when you reach out to those people who might be swithering. Who, yeah. or who may just have moved from no to yes, but I'm not quite convinced because any constitution worth its salt would have to say that uh, people would be a citizens and that their, their beliefs and attitudes uh, before independence would have, they would not be prejudicial in any way whatsoever uh, once yeah. independence takes place. I, you're saying to people who voted no, Look, your rights as a citizen, your human rights, uh, would be fully protected in an independent Scotland. And I think they're entitled to that because right now, for example, if independence were declared tomorrow, then Scotland would inherit the Westminster system with all of its flaws. Mm. And, and that would allow any putative Scottish government to abuse people for whatever reason, because there'd be no constraints, uh, because the sovereign entity would be the executive in Scotland, the same as it is in uh, the UK just now. And, uh, but, but, but subject to subject to the the norms of how the Scottish Parliament has operated, you know, the, the Human Rights Act is built into the system. The the incorporation of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, you know, there, there will be concerns. But I, I agree with you absolutely. You know, we, we the more we're, we're open yeah. book with the people of Scotland about what we want to do, the better. And these people absolutely. are entitled for the the putative sovereign state to make it very plain that they will be protected and not abused in any new state. Yeah. And I think that's an important message that should go out from everybody in the SNP, uh, particularly to people who are, might be wavering or concerned uh, about what form the new state might take. Because when new states are formed, they're under enormous pressure. Mm -hmm. I think you made that point earlier. You, you're looking to your friends. You're looking for support overseas. You're looking for... Uh, people to be sympathetic to the new state. And one of the ways to ensure that they're sympathetic, I imagine, would be to say, look, this is how we intend to treat people in that new environment. There will yeah. not be a hiatus. This will happen immediately. Absolutely. Hence, it's being published well in advance so that people can kick the tires of it and, and, and see that. This is, to, to, to segue briefly, the work in my office is, is structured in four four strands. Uh, we, we, we can do stuff as the government of Scotland, and we can demonstrate that we're using power well. And I can evangelise for that down here and internationally. At Westminster, we can critique what the UK government's doing and, and thereby say, we can do better, you're not doing very well. And then we can call for stuff in terms of earning the UK government to do things differently, to do things better. And then for an independent Scotland, we can commit to stuff. So all of those things build the case for independence by critiquing where we are now and saying what we'll do better. And the constitution is exactly 
one of those exercises where, okay, not everybody's into constitutions, but those who are want to hear about it and want to hear that we've done our homework. So well, the it, fact it, that that works ongoing now and will be out in good time is 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 energising. It really is. Well, it, it would be ironic if the, if the, the party that is supposed major constitutional change wasn't able to talk articulately about constitutions. <laughs> <laughs> you, for me, when I look at other countries uh, and I look at secessionist movements and separatist movements, they always begin with the constitution. They don't begin somewhere else and say, look, at some stage we'll produce a constitution. They say, here's the constitution. This is what it will look like. Uh, this is what we will stand for and what we will not stand for. Okay. It seems to me it's a contract between the new state and its putative citizens. And it seems to me people are entitled to that as a minimum, Absolutely. categorically. So it shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be something yeah. to be done some later stage, but it should be available right now, I would humbly suggest. But I want to move on to something else. We've had a question about Stuart MacDonald made an impassioned speech on the Lord's amendments to the Nationality Bill. And the questioner is asking if you would be prepared to comment on that, perhaps sure. amplify it in large. Uh, Stuart's uh, one of the stars of the group here. He's uh, really passionate, really decent, really committed. Uh, he's, he's, he's got one of the toughest briefs uh, at, at Westminster because it's just so unrelentingly horrible dealing with the Home Office as it stands and uh, the Home Secretary as she is. Uh, and indeed the 80 seat majority that the Tories have got on this stuff. They, 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 they genuinely uh, on the one hand, they'll talk about we need to do all we can for for Ukraine, but then on the other hand, do all they can to make it difficult for refugees to come to this country. Uh, Médecins Sans Frontières uh, has today, after the passage of, uh, and Stuart spoke passionately about the amendments, we all voted against them, uh, but uh, the UK government got its way because the UK's democracy is deeply, deeply flawed, and an 80-seat majority lets the, lets the Tories do pretty much whatever they want. Uh, which is deeply flawed, and we fought that. So I hope that the people of Scotland could see that we were there fighting because we will do this differently, we will do this better. Uh, but we lost because that's the, our, the arithmetic as it stands. So Médecins Sans Frontières has today put out one of the most damning statements I've ever seen. And Médecins Sans Frontières, you know, they, they're not a political organisation in a party political sense. They, 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 they operate worldwide. They deal with, they're dealing with the Taliban in Afghanistan. They're dealing with all sorts of warlords in Yemen. It, it, they're, they're used to dealing with grim stuff. And they've said categorically the UK is one of the most hostile countries to refugees in the world. And, and that, that's shaming. That's appalling. Uh, look at how the EU, again, back to how the EU's leveled up over several levels over the Ukraine crisis. So the EU, every single state in the EU said, to hell with the paperwork for three years. If you're Ukrainian and you're in trouble, get yourself here, we'll waive the paperwork, we'll sort that out later. The UK created yet another complex bureaucratic scheme that involves far too much red tape and, and far too much uh, complexity. Uh, and and you know, the, 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 the there's an element of the Tory party, to be fair, not all of them, there are some of them that are pushing back against this even, but they have a fixation with freedom of movement, they have a fixation with immigration that, that I, I, I just have a different worldview entirely. I, 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 Scotland's tragedy is that for centuries we exported our people, it's only in recent, really recent history that we've started to increase our population, it was entirely down to EU freedom of movement. And, you know, I myself, I, I, I grew up as, and, 
1979, my dad was made redundant and I grew up in Saudi Arabia because that's where he went because he's a builder and there was a lot of jobs in Saudi. So, so I grew up as an immigrant and I feel it really, really personally that people are being made to feel uncomfortable in Scotland because of settled status, because of all that stuff. And the immigration bill is, is an appalling piece of legislation that shames us, uh, shames all of us, uh, and, and shame on the, the Tory government that brought it forward. And, and again, I think that underlines the case for independence, that were we an independent state, we would have been part of the EU's scheme to waive the visas for uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, would, a more humane system, a far better way of doing things. Uh, but uh, I, the, the comment is that Stuart's played a blinder, but uh, um, sadly, the arithmetic's against us, and uh, this this dreadful, dreadful piece of legislation will go forward. It's very, very sad. I mean, uh, we look at the Irish example where they were able to accommodate people without any impediment. Uh, there's all sorts of other areas where you can look at, and but you're absolutely right. It seems to me, uh, you. <laughs> What, what the UK government seems to be saying is, look, we have this great, uh, you know, refugee policy, but the actual implementation, you know, is incredibly complex. I mean, people are asked to upload details of their uh, their savings, uh, their bank statements. Uh, yeah, biometric data. Yeah. And you're thinking, here's somebody standing at the border with a bag and an extra pair of socks. Yep. On, on what level can they complete this information? And I gather that some people who have managed to find that information have then been told three days later, look, we lost it, you're going to have to do it again. Yeah. This reminds me so much of the southern states after the the war, the Civil War in the States, where you know everyone had a vote, including black people. But what happened when people went to vote? Black people were given greaseproof paper to, to sign their name to validate their vote. White people got ordinary paper, an ordinary pen. So they said, well, you can't you can't sign your names, therefore you can't vote. That's what the law says. And it seems to me it's the same sort of principle, i.e. we'll say it's straightforward, we'll say we're trying to help, but we'll impede it every turn to make it practically difficult for people to actually pursue the very out, outlet that we've that we've specified. Anyway, it, it just strikes me as uh, rather nasty, frankly. Yes, yes, it's grim. And, and it's not incompetence, it's quite deliberate. The UK has uh, appalling, bureaucratic, complex ways of doing this stuff. It's a, a, a good friends of mine, uh, uh, he's uh, a British citizen in the Home Office, she's American. And in order for them to get married, the paper chase, the permanent, permanent status, the leave to remain there, it, it was appalling. Absolutely appalling. And of course, Unless you've gone through that or you know somebody close to you who has gone through that, you don't necessarily appreciate just how grim it is. But is, is, is this all part of the, I hesitate to say this, but it sounds a bit like it, that the, the Tory party dog whistle on immigration, it's all part and parcel of that, that they, they weigh the votes they get from people who are concerned about immigration. And as long as they keep blowing that whistle, the likelihood is, and the people who blow it, faster and longer are the people who are likely to accede to positions of uh, authority, maybe even prime minister. I don't know what Priti Patel has in mind, but what, when I watch her behavior, I get the impression sometimes that that's, that's what this is all about. If I make life difficult, then I, I, I'll, I'll be a shoe in at some stage for the top job. They, 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 they have a 
a worldview in this stuff that I find difficult to fathom. But then they'll do things that will go off kilter. The, the, the huge offer that was made to Hong Kong citizens uh, to, to come to the UK. You know, the people who voted for Brexit voted to cut immigration. They didn't vote to give lots of Hong Kongers a route in. Three million. And yet, and yet it was brought through by this government. It, but, but then you see how they talk about uh, the, the boats off Calais. The, the 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 idea that the RNLI is being subjected to a ghastly campaign for saving people at sea. Now, how they got to be in trouble at sea, there's a legitimate argument to be said that people traffickers, of course, were all anti-people traffickers. But the reason people are taking these desperate measures is because there isn't a safe and legal route to get here. So, so, so it's actually a testament to just how bad the UK systems are, that people are feeling the need to take these desperate measures, and, which are then used as reasons why we need a more complex and bureaucratic system. It, it's, it, it, it's a sad, sad state of affairs. And, and the, the fixation with, with immigration that you, that you see manifested in big chunks of UK politics is something that I just reject entirely. And I'm, I'm really glad to say that in Scotland, we're, we're not immune to it. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. But there's much more of a consensus across the parties that freedom of movement has been good for us. Immigration has been good for us. I mean, we're a third of the UK landmass. We're not full. We need more people. Yeah. And, and that seems to be just much, much more of a consensus within Scottish politics than you'll see in the UK. Uh, we've got elections coming up soon, local elections. Uh, and I suspect a lot of the, uh, the fear mongering that you mentioned earlier might be down to that uh, as much as laying the, the groundwork for uh, opposing a referendum. Um, uh, because I hear in the grapevine that the Conservatives are not expected to do terribly well. Mm -hmm. um, so if they're not going to do terribly well, the strategy would appear to be, let's make sure the SNP vote is reduced as much as we can make it. So the margin doesn't look quite as bad as it we expect it to be. Um, but it, it, I think people, I, I'm not a member of any political party, I, I hasten to add, but let me just say this. When I look at the, the number of independence parties that are on offer to the electorate, and I'm thinking particularly with the SNP and Alaba standing for uh, council elections in May. Don't you think that's confusing to people? I mean, don't you think that, that the very act of two groups competing for the one grouping entity, voting entity, is likely to subtract from both? Oh, the, the alternative would be hegemony of one party, which becomes uncomfortable and unhealthy for other reasons. I mean, look, I... I, I I regret deeply the way that uh, Alapa was created, and I, I, I regret that the SNP lost members to it. But we do live in a democracy, and if, if people wanted a different proposition, wanted a different way of doing things, well, we, we can't stop that happening. And the SNP does not hold the monopoly on the independence franchise. And we'll see how people vote in the council elections. Uh, I, I feel pretty chipper from an SNP perspective. I think the, the, the people have our backs. I, I think that the people know that we've been doing a tough job in tough times, but we've actually done pretty well. That uh, in, in Stirling, the place I know best, uh, the SNP is the administration of Stirling Council. Joint, well, Labour's our junior partner uh, in Stirling, and it's worked pretty well. Uh, we've, we've put the badges to one side. They've got on with running Stirling well for the betterment of the people of Stirling. But in terms of uh, other parties who are pro-independent standing, well, 
that's their democratic right to do so, and there will be no quarter asked nor given from the SNP perspective on on those those counts. We stand on our record. We stand on our proposition, and uh, other other people, other parties are entitled to bring that forward and let them stand on theirs. But from from, from your point about the Tories, uh, absolutely, yeah, the, the, the the Tories in Stirling are quite obviously doing a scorched earth strategy. Their 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 literature is everything's rubbish, everything's terrible. Uh, and yet somehow they magically they're going to do it better themselves, but they're not actually offering any visions as to how they do that. Uh, we, we're in the process of putting together our council manifesto uh, in Stirling with the, the, the record of the administration that's outgoing and what we want to, what we'd like to do uh, with the people's support for the next uh, administration. The Tories are doing nothing, nothing like that. They're not actually trying to win. Yeah, the, the, the literature they're putting out saying we're the strong opposition. And it's like, actually, you're not. <laughs> In order to be a strong opposition, you need to have other ideas that you put forward. They, they just put forward boneheaded truculence, and it, it, it's not going to work for them. But that's, again, another reason why I think the people of Scotland want to see serious people with credible plans and credible policies that we've done our own work with a bit of passion to, to build the country up. And I, I, I think the people are open to that and receptive to that. Uh, I, I've had some great campaigning canvassing uh, days across Stirling in the last few weeks and looking forward to many more. I, I think the local elections are really important, both in terms of who's running local government in Scotland, which is crucial, but also the litmus test about, well, how are people actually feeling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, again, the, the same opinion poll suggests that, you know, that Scots are much more likely to feel the Scottish government has handled the pandemic well opposed to the UK government. I mean, wherever you look, the pollsters are saying, look, the people think, despite all the difficulties and hassles and problems, the Scottish government's done pretty well. Can, can we move on, please, to, to talk about, back to the EU for a second, if you wouldn't mind. Obviously, you would you would like Scotland to join the uh, the EU uh, as soon as the EU is, is feels it's appropriate. Obviously, there'll have to be some sort of... Uh, uh, process of induction uh, or re-induction. What's your position about using the euro? Because Scotland would then have a choice. It would then say, it could then say, well, we might adopt the euro, we might continue with sterling, uh, or we could have our own currency. What's your take on that, Alan? Yeah, I I got into some trouble in the last year, or the last but one European election, I think it was, where where I said I'm, I'm agnostic on the currency. And of course, the Tories leapt on that as you know, Smithy's got a pro euro plan and he's just keeping it secret and he's dropping hints. So it's like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm really not. I, I, I think an independent Scotland will need the currency that's going to serve the interests of the Scottish economy best in, in terms of our trading patterns, in terms of our, how, how our economy works, and also in terms of sovereignty and in terms of our control of that obviously taking due note of how international capital markets work. And uh, we've, got, we've got our options. Uh, SNP party policy, which I, which I entirely back, is that uh, we maintain a, a union with Sterling for a period uh, while we essentially make the decision about what's going to work best. I know people in government are working on that to clarify and uh, crystallise that proposition much more uh, precisely uh, as we get closer to an independence uh, referendum. And I, I think it's absolutely important that we do do that. But for the moment, I'm, I'm not massively theological on, on this stuff. I, I, I think maintaining a union with Sterling, well, that denotes a degree of uh, shared sovereignty that I, I, I think 
would fly in the face of why we wanted to be independent. Creating an independent Scottish currency, well, we'd need to have really serious thoughts about what reserves we'd need to have in order to defend that from speculation in the international markets. Exceeding into the euro, that also denotes a degree of pooling of that economic sovereignty that maybe the people of Scotland don't want to do. So that there's there's a, there's ups and downs to all of this stuff. But from, from my perspective, I, I think that the perspective that the party's got right now that uh, we've got a holding pattern until we decide where we want to get to is, is I think, exactly the right one. Uh, I see an awful lot of advantages to Euro membership politically in terms of, well, who's your member, who's your bank of last resort, Frankfurt? Does it exist? Yes. Is it part of a far, far bigger block than the UK is? Yes, of course it is. Uh, the euro is on its way to becoming the fiat currency of an awful lot of other countries. So there's advantages to that politically, economically, but there's there's other things to be considered as well. So I, I, I personally genuinely don't have much of a strong position on that stuff. Uh, and I'm Molly the same other, other people are economists better than better than <laughs> I ever will be. Well, I asked Molly that question last week uh, because she is an economist, of course. Yes, indeed. And uh, I think her view was pretty close to the modern monetary theory context perspective, i.e. that when you have your own currency, it gives you freedom. Uh, of course, you have to be careful. You have to be you have to watch inflation and all the rest of those good things. But her claim also is that uh, by running your own currency, it gives you flexibility uh, that you wouldn't have if you're locked into... She, uh, her point was the point that you made, in fact, which was if you're sovereign, how can you be sovereign if your currency is controlled by somebody else? It, it's a fair point. Uh, uh, and she sounded as if uh, this was not a new thing, you know, that many countries that become independent have their own currency and, you know... It's, but it will be. I, I think it will only become an issue. I suspect when there is a referendum, yes. because that's what happened last time around. It was, it was a great debate about are you, are you going to call it the the punt or the the groat or whatever. People and it's it's a question that regularly comes up, and 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 so it should. And and I I do know that some of the best brains in the party are working on this stuff and uh, the, the answer will be an awful lot clearer as we get closer to the point at which we're going to be asking that. But you know, look at the wider European continent. There's an awful lot of macroeconomic stuff in flux for a lot of people at the moment. So I, I think it's right that we've a, a very well-developed holding pattern and uh, that's something that will be brought forward in due course. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, I, I can see it's not going to go away anytime soon. I suspect right. it'll form part of the... Uh, all of this sort of groundwork that's taking place by the opposition to try and make people feel uncertain or, or unsure or nervous about the pound in their pocket and all of that good stuff. Anyway, that's it. But certainly well, they've the got that advantage, advantage at the moment that they can deal in hypotheticals and say that everything's going to be bad. And wait, wait till we start rolling rolling our proposition forward over their positions. I mean, okay. we're, we're doing our homework on this. We're doing our work on this. And as, of course, as we get closer to the independence date, and as you said earlier, we've not even got a date for the independence referendum yet. So there, there's some there's some propositions that still need a bit of work. Of course they yeah. do. Yeah. Are you able to tell us anything about what's happening behind the scenes? I don't want you to put you on the spot too much, but uh... Uh, really not. Uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of things going on in a lot of places. I, I, I can tell you what I'm up to, which which is uh, the, the outreach project that we've got uh, uh, 
only half jokingly called Project No Surprises. The idea that uh, our friends and allies, obviously, we don't want to get them into our debate. We don't want anybody saying, I back independence or I'm hostile to independence. But Scotland acceding into the EU, acceding into NATO, becoming independent, this has implications for all of our friends and neighbours and allies. So as foreign affairs lead here at Westminster, I'm out around the embassies uh, in London here, but using them to reach the member state capitals. Uh, I'm off to Brussels in uh, two weeks' time uh, to go and uh, get around the institutions and speak to the MEPs to make them aware of when things start moving and things become more visible on your radar, bear us in mind as a source of information. Uh, here's where we're coming from. Here's what we want to see happening. Uh, that's, that's an effort that uh, the Westminster MPs are going to be spending a lot of time doing, I hope, uh, getting out to particularly the European countries, but also to the States, Canada, uh, places who've got an interest in uh, the NATO uh, side of things particularly. Uh, so there, there, there's, there's a lot of preparatory work being done uh, on this. And because of COVID, I, I don't think the opportunity has been there to be too front of house on it. Because of COVID, resources have been obviously tied up fighting COVID. But uh, I, I think we're in for an exciting few few years in Scottish politics. I really do. Good. Well, as the, as the Chinese say, me, you live in interesting <laughs> times. <laughs> well, we certainly do. We certainly do. <laughs> We're just about to sort of wrap up, Alan. Uh, we've got about three or four minutes. If you want to share with us any specific hot buttons for you, anything that you feel particularly strongly about, any, maybe say three messages you want to get out to the folks who are watching and listening tonight that, that are terribly, terribly important to you. The big issue that's uh, rocketed up everybody's agenda sadly because of what's happening in Ukraine, is, is food security. Uh, where our food comes from, how our food is treated, how our animals are treated as they're growing up, as they're slaughtered. Uh, I was on the Agriculture Committee of the European Parliament for 11 years, whatever it was, and I, 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 I care passionately about agriculture. I, I think farmers are great to deal with. If, if they think you're doing well, they'll tell you. If they think you're not doing so well, they'll tell you even faster. They're, 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 they're very blunt, but also very loyal. And farmers think in terms of generations. They think in terms of seasons. They think you know, to, to, to prepare the ground for the crop that gets planted, that gets harvested. They're, they're having to think long term in a way that actually not many people do in day-to-day in, in -day life. Uh, so so they're, they're great to work with. And uh, I'm, I'm really privileged that I represent some of the best farmland in Scotland now in Stirling. I'm away to a, a farm visit on Friday uh, to go and chew the fat, see how they're doing. But we have, and, and it's a UK thing, uh, we have forgotten the connection that we have with food. And, and uh, I, I think COVID shocks a lot of people uh, out of that complacency that where our food comes from is utterly fundamental to how our society operates. Uh, people have run down their store cupboards because they think that the supermarket's going to have everything they need when that's not necessarily the case. You know, the, the resilience that we need to build back into our society in terms of food supply, also the same goes for energy, though energy, people have less, less, less control over their energy, but uh, getting back that connection of where our food's coming from, buy local, support local producers uh, is so, so, so important. Uh, and the role of the, the big supermarkets, the big multiples, yes, there's supply chains that are incredible feats of, of, of achievement, but the way they're operating often mitigates against the smaller local producer, and it's the smaller local producer that isn't going to shut up shop and leave when things get tough. 
But uh, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about where the UK is going with uh, its trade policy uh, in terms of undercutting domestic food production. However, we define domestic. You know, I, 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 I'll, I'll make the same argument in favour of British farmers as I will for Scottish. We need to make sure that indigenous food production is maintained and that infrastructure cannot be allowed to, to wither because it's being undercut by perhaps cheaper but other uh, production elsewhere because the global supply chain is under un unprecedented pressure yeah, and, and I mean, absolutely. we've got a great story for Scottish agriculture to tell but we need to be much more on our toes to tell it. Well and people can also tune into the Scottish Food Show which is also on Indie Live yeah. and you'll get masses of fantastic information uh, on that show about local suppliers. The best places you can go to in Scotland for the best cheese, you don't have to buy cheese from a supermarket that's been produced in Scotland, shipped to Milton Keynes and then back up to Scotland again, which is just plain crazy. <laughs> Particularly when petrol prices are rising, fuel prices are increasing. It makes absolutely no sense. The, the local model must be the way of the future. I'm sorry, we have to, we have to uh, wrap up now. Uh, thank you very much. Always, always good to chew the fat. British democracy at work again, just to conclude. Boris Johnson was pictured laughing while the plight of refugees was being discussed in the Commons today as we hear that family incomes will fall faster than any time since records began. Thank you again and good night. Join us next Wednesday. Please take care, look after yourselves, stay safe. Have you supported the crowdfunder? If not, please do so. Take care. Good night, everyone.